Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 62. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Good day to you, Dr. Woolman. And a lovely day to you, Christina. How are you? Oh, smashing. Oh, good. <laughs> we need you to be smashing today because we're going into yet another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. Oh, yes. And it's going to be very exciting. We're going to meet with Dr. Sienna Craig, who is an anthropologist and specializes in medical anthropology. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But I just want to say hello to everyone. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host along with Christina today as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. And as we search for optimal health, I'm sure there are people that are going to be listening in to Dr. Craig and they would like to uh, find out how to ask her a question or to uh, give a thought or a reply to something. Can you tell us how to do that? Absolutely. At any time during this live presentation, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment just by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. But be sure to click the submit button. And that way it will show up on my screen and I can share it with our guests. Now, if you prefer to ask the question or make the comment directly yourself, you're very welcome to do so. And we encourage you to do it, of course. If you prefer to dial into our conference line, the number is 323-476-3672, and your ID is 607-393-POUND. And now, just in case that went by too quick, not to worry, it will show up on the screen during the show. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, you're welcome, and thank you, Christina, and I'm looking forward to some great questions from our viewers today. As I said... We're going to be speaking with Dr. Sienna Craig. She's an associate professor uh, in the Department of Anthropology at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. She also is an author, a public speaker. She has a journal that she co-edits. Uh, she has a nonprofit that we're going to speak about. She has spent most of her time in the areas of Asia, Nepal, Tibet, um, Bhutan, and we're going to talk with her today about medical anthropology, find out what it is and how it affects us here in the United States and around the world. So without further ado, I would like to introduce to our audience, Dr. Sienna Craig. Welcome, Sienna. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for sharing with us today, Dr. Craig. It's my pleasure. We're, I'm really excited. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got to bounce a little. <laughs> Well, it's interesting to see that you're excited about anthropology, and we're going to find out about that. Sienna, what I usually do as the medical guide is I tell our audience the path that we're going to take, hopefully. And uh, today I'm hoping to, at the beginning, find out a little bit about how you uh, decided to become an anthropologist and a medical anthropologist, and then more specifically, uh, an Asian and Tibetan, Nepalese medicine. And then we want to see how that actually works in the process of the world that we live in, in our magical medical tour, and see what lessons we learn from anthropology that can affect us in our practice of medicine today. And then whatever else happens. How does that sound to you? 
Sounds just fine. Sounds great. Beautiful. So let's uh, start out uh, with a brief introduction of yourself. Tell us where, how, when, why you got interested in anthropology and how you got to where you are now. Sure. Uh, well, um, in an unofficial way, uh, I was introduced to anthropology growing up because both my father and my stepfather had training uh, in anthropology. I grew up in Southern California in Santa Barbara and uh, each had their own pathway into the discipline. My dad worked as an archaeologist and worked with native Chumash uh, groups primarily in Southern California. My stepfather is a photographer and has spent um, more than 30 years working with lowland Maya communities in, in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. And so I kind of grew up uh, with these influences, with an interest in cultures that were different than my own, um, and with the possibility that you could have a long-term connection to uh, cultures and places and ways of looking at the world that were quite different, but not necessarily um, antagonistic to how I might live my own life. Um, then I went to college and uh, became very interested in a, in a more academic sense in both anthropology and the study of the world's religions. So I was actually a religion major in college. Uh, I went to Brown and that was what I focused on. And uh, I had uh, a lot of desire basically to go study abroad and to go to a new part of the world and was drawn to Asia for a lot of different reasons. And um, But how I ended up in Nepal was relatively, not quite random, but it, it was somewhat calculated, but it was that there was a program led students to Nepal uh, for a semester's experience, and it had a really good reputation, especially as uh, as far as language instruction went. And I felt that although I'd studied Spanish growing up in California, if I were going to go to Asia, I wanted to dive into a language that was going to be useful to me. And this program had a good reputation for Nepali and for getting people speaking Nepali uh, quickly and relatively well. Um, and so I went there. But uh, and, and fell in love with it, fell in love with the, the early experiences of what it meant to do field work. Um, but I really got interested in medical anthropology through, in a sense, the back door of being uh, very curious about animals and about how people took care of their animals in a place that relied so much for livelihood and well-being, but also for um, symbols, important symbols within culture and religion on animals. And I was specifically interested in, in horses because I had grown up riding. So by virtue of being interested in these questions, I started uh, what is now a 20-plus year relationship with uh, a place in northern Nepal called Mustang and uh, a group of people there who, uh, among the many things that they do, uh, they are both doctors for people and some of them also treat uh, treat animals. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Did you say yep. mu Mustang or? Must, it's, it's, called, it's pronounced Mustang, but it's spelled like the car, Mustang. Um, okay. and, or the horse. Uh, yeah, though it, that's a that's a funny other connection. It it doesn't um, Mustang uh, is a Nepali misnomer or a kind of misspeaking of a Tibetan word montang, uh, which means plain of aspiration, and that's the the main kind of capital city of this uh, of this region where I've spent a lot of time. Would you feel comfortable if we did the rest of the show in Nepali? Punza. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, oh no! <laughs> I guess I'll I should just, have asked myself. I'll just cook. You guys keep chatting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what's the What's the training if someone wants to become an anthropologist? What is the training for that? Well, you know, there are many different pathways and many different programs, really, that that um, uh, allow you into to the discipline. Um, as I mentioned before, I actually was not an anthropology major as an undergraduate. I focused more on religion, though I did take anthropology courses. Um, but there are a lot of good undergraduate programs. And speaking with my, uh, you know, my college educator hat on, it's an amazing undergraduate liberal arts major because it's fundamentally anthropology is about what it means to be human and and what it means to be human over time uh in the in the long duration of thinking about how uh, uh we've evolved uh, about human evolution um uh about deep time in that sense it's also about um our past in a more historical sense and thinking about uh, ancient civilizations through the lens of archaeology. It's about language and the relationship between language and culture. And then finally, it's about this thing we call culture itself and studying systems of meaning, how human beings make sense of their worlds, how they make meaning out of it, um, and how they not only organize their thoughts, but organize social structures and um, major civilizations and war and, you know, all of the other things that, that make us for better or for worse human. Um, but to become a professional anthropologist, such as it is, it, it usually requires going on for graduate training. Uh, and I did my PhD work at Cornell university. Um, but before that I spent, uh, this semester in Nepal as an undergraduate and then was fortunate to get a Fulbright fellowship to go back to Nepal after I finished my BA. And that was really what made me an anthropologist in the sense that it was a, it was my first sustained, uh, experience doing field work, living and working and operating in another culture or another cultural context. And, um, the, that, Fulbright grant was for a year, but I ended up living in Nepal for three years at that time and making the connections um, and sort of gaining uh, both an actual fluency in languages that I need to speak for where I work, but also a kind of cultural fluency in um, how people live in, in this part of the world and an ability to ask questions about how people live and how life is changing that um, at the core is really what uh, is the, is the heart of anthropology and, and the heart of any, hopefully profession is tied to some kind of, you know, true connection to a place or a group of people or a question that you're never quite done answering. <laughs> it seems to me the way you describe that. And so beautifully that everybody should, uh, have courses in anthropology. Maybe that would help our planet a little bit more. I think it would. Um, I mean, you're, uh, I, I'm, uh, one of the converted, so to speak, but fundamental tenets of anthropology really are about cultural relativism, about stepping out of your own comfort zones, making the strange familiar and the familiar strange, um, not exoticizing other people or places, uh, but also seeing them uh, as uh, representative of their own uh, modes of reason, their own genius, their own ways of thinking about and working with the world. You, know, you mentioned, uh, I think when speaking about your father, uh, mm -hmm. about archaeology. 
Yeah. My mo- my mother actually wanted me to become an archaeologist, so I oh. started thinking about that at a very early age. And oh. I know that when uh, you know an archaeologist goes out and suddenly their pick hits something, and the next thing you know, they discover uh, Tut's King Tut's <laughs> tomb or something yeah. like that. Does that happen in anthropology? Well, uh, yes, in the sense that um, archaeology is actually under the big umbrella of anthropology. So there are four different fields of anthropology, and archaeology is one. Um, but it, it, the, the literal, you know, hitting something in the ground doesn't quite happen the same way in cultural anthropology. But you do stumble across things um, uh, at times that you might not expect, or um, you might think that something you that has been interpreted in one way at a certain moment in time, you're quite sure of the meaning at that moment in time, you find out later with new information that actually it means something very different or uh, the implications of that find are different than you originally thought that they were. So that sort of stuff happens all the time, or at least it should. Could you give us an example of that? Sure. Well, uh, one example would be historically, um, there were bigger gaps of time and space between a lot of the people that, um, let's say, to, to use the part of the world that I work in as an example, where people might go to the Himalaya and do interesting fieldwork on, let's say, uh, the Sherpas, right? A group that is very famous for its role in mountaineering and lots of people know about the Sherpas. So maybe uh, early on you have a, a, an ethnologist or an anth- and an anthropologist going out and and doing history and doing field work among Sherpa communities in northern Nepal. And they record a set of uh, rituals, let's say, death practices or specific practices during uh, a time of the year. And they interpret it, right, as part of their, as part of their job, as part of their cultural fluency. And they say, oh, this, this symbol means that thing, and this is the importance of this ritual. And then, you, you know, fast forward 50 years, and you enter the digital age and a time at which not only has Sherpa culture continued, like all cultures, to evolve and change, it's not stuck in a box, but you also have more and more Sherpas who are invested in understanding their own history and their own culture and looking at, let's say, some of the old footage taken by that anthropologist. And so you may have points of contention where, you know, the anthropologist has interpreted this data in one way, has tried to link it to larger theories about uh, aspects of human social organization or marriage or any of these kind of key things that historically anthropology cared about. And you have a local informant whose grandmother or great-grandmother is in that video saying, actually, I heard that this was this, you know, this was not exactly the way that you're telling this story. So you, there are lots of examples of that today, um, points of contention, but also more and more points of collaboration between um, people that used to be further apart in terms of language and power and culture and the ability to be um, the culture brokers of of their societies. Um, and so in that sense, it's a very exciting time now, I think, to be an anthropologist um, that because of those those connections or the ability to have those kinds of conversations. No, they just weren't makes, possible 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. That makes sense. I want to, uh, because this is Magical Medical Tour, and although we could probably talk about just anthropology 
for a very long time. I mm. want to get into the medical aspects of what you do. How did sure. you make the decision within anthropology to go into sort of a subspecialty? I'm mm. guessing it's a subspecialty, medical anthropology. And tell us a little about that. So uh, medical anthropology in general terms is uh, is the cross-cultural study of health and illness. Um, it includes people who study Western medicine or what you might call biomedicine, um, people that go into places like cardiology labs and learn about how cardiologists make their decisions or talk to patients or, you know, deal with those kinds of uh, the ethics of their practice. But you also have people who work like I do with practitioners of traditional medicine, Tibetan medicine or Ayurveda or Chinese medicine. Uh, so that's one part of medical anthropology. But the, the other um, main piece of it really is to try to understand uh, and um, think systematically about um, what it means to be ill, how we navigate that, what we decide is a medicine or not, and why, um, how we determine whether or not we say uh, a medicine or a therapy works, you know, where efficacy resides, what it consists in, um, because we know it's not just about um, biochemistry. It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, I got interested in medical anthropology, like I, like I said earlier, sort of through my initial inf interest in veterinary care and in how p human societies that were so dependent on animals chose to and, and developed the expertise to keep their animals healthy. And then from there, I, I got very interested in, in um, this very deep and, and beautiful tradition of Tibetan medicine, um, both as a philosophy of health and illness and as a lived practice that uh, provides healthcare to a lot of people throughout the Tibetan and Himalayan worlds where I spend time doing research. And speaking about that, when you were in Nepal, you were there for, you've been there many times, and mm -hmm. you've spent uh, considerable time there. <clears throat> did you ever get sick over there? I have been, yeah. And did you go under the care of uh, traditional medicine, or did you go to what what you're calling biomedical western medicine yep. or or a combination like most people in the world uh i use both <laughs> <laughs> yeah um uh definitely i've used both um uh i've taken tibetan medicines and ayurvedic medicines and chinese medicines but i certainly also uh use different forms of western medicine both when i'm there and when i'm here mm -hmm. um but yeah, I would say, you know, another kind of fundamental area within medical anthropology is this idea of medical pluralism, that um, most societies in the world and most people in those societies do not have one path that they pursue toward wellness. Um, and you could think about that at multiple levels. I mean, you could think about it uh, in the kind of uh, somewhat silly, but also really valid example of well, if you get a cold virus, you know, you might um, uh, take grandma's chicken soup. You might go get some echinacea. Um, you might try to sleep or otherwise self-medicate with over-the-counter things. And then eventually you might also see uh, a primary care physician or someone else, uh, you know, about the problem. And so um, even in, a, in an environment where we think, oh, you know, 
when we think medicine, we think that it's all Western medicine, even in our own lives. There are so many examples of different strategies uh, or patterns of, of resort for dealing with health problems. Yeah, I find myself doing the same thing, taking a number of different types of medicines when I have different things and putting things. It's, sometimes it's on a scale. If it's simple, mm-hmm. uh, I'll take something more herbal. Right. And then as it gets more critical, I'll, I go in another direction. You yep. know, I, I've, spent, I've also spent some time in China and Bhutan and a few other places where I've seen that it seems like they are very good at integrating medicines. They, even in some of their major hospitals uh, in different parts of China and Bhutan, I've seen where they have Western medicine and their traditional medicine being practiced together. And we're just starting to see that here. Uh, mm. In this country, do you think what you're doing, the kind of work that you're doing, is is helping to bring that about? I think it certainly can, um, and you know, it's I, that's been one of the uh, quite exciting aspects of the work that I've been able to do over the years. Um, working, for instance, with uh, an, uh, a non governmental organization that began its work in Tibet and now works in Nepal on issues related to maternal and child health. That organization is called One Heart. Um, And in that role, you know, in my role there and as a medical anthropologist, um, it wasn't so much that we were trying to say, oh, you should only use Tibetan medicine for maternal and child health care in a place that has historically very high rates of maternal uh, and neonatal death, but rather instead looking at uh, a range of things from the structural conditions and the social conditions and the geographic conditions that make it such that people have uh, a much greater chance of dying during childbirth in Tibetan areas to the more nuanced kind of deeper understandings within a household or within a woman's point of view about um, what it means to be pregnant uh, to what Tibetan medical texts have to say about this. And then using all of that knowledge and, and thinking about religion in that context too, and using all of that knowledge to craft um, an intervention uh, that the aim of which is to reduce maternal and neonatal death, but to do so in a way that doesn't just come in and say, all we need to do is give you is to change your knowledge, the attitudes you have, and those those backwards practices that you do, and then everything will be better. You know, the the, the fundamental premise of medical anthropology, in that sense, is to be a little more nuanced in thinking about those interactions between Western medicine and different traditional forms of medicine. Um, so, and that happens from the hospital to the household. When I was in uh, China. And I was uh, studying over there. At one time in China, the doctor was not allowed to ever touch a woman. Mm. And they, they had these very beautiful figurines. Uh, and I've seen them in white, uh, maybe in marble or alabaster or something else, where the woman would point to areas on the human body of this figurine and say, this is where I hurt. This is what's going on. Clearly, right. things like that change. What, what does it take to change a culture? How, and how long do you see on an average for a culture to, to change something that they do? Well, I mean, culture's changing all the time, right? Uh, it's, it's happening every day. It's happening all around us. And at that level, it's important to remember that 
that culture isn't a black box, that it is contested, that it's that it's not one narrative, it's many narratives. And so you you can easily find someone who may affirm a kind of idea that you have about Chinese medicine, for for instance. And then you can find another practitioner who completely contests or or contrasts with that view. And they're both Chinese practitioners, you know. So I, I think that um it's tough to give a, a sort of simple answer of, oh, this is a point at which a culture will change. Um, but I do think that it has to do, um, like most things in the world, with with power and influence and voice and um, the, the ability also to feel like um, change is not being imposed from outside, but that it's allowed to, to percolate and, you know, people are allowed to figure out ways to change um, that don't feel like uh, just a, a threat or an imposition, but that feel like an authentic form of transformation. Um, and I think that that's true no matter what culture you're talking about. You don't have to go to Bhutan to feel that. Um, I think uh, here on a college campus, you can feel that um, about even issues around uh, that have an impact uh, on on health and illness. Uh, here at Dartmouth, you know, it's a it's it's the place of Animal House, right? And it's a place where lots of people um, sometimes drink too much, and and students know that they're not supposed to do that. But what will you know? But they do. And so, what what does it take to change that set of behaviors? Certainly, not only uh, a set of kind of uh, prescriptions from from the top or or statements of truth about what alcohol does to a young brain. It's it's much more complicated than that. You alluded before to different uh, cultures have different views of disease and health. Yeah. How would you say Western medicine, uh, not Western medicine, but people in the West, specifically mm. in a country like ours, not a socialized medicine type of country, how do we deal with disease and health? How do we look at it? And are there things that we can learn from other countries? I, I think absolutely there are things um, that we can learn from, from other places. Um, it, it's hard to generalize, but I would say that we tend to focus more, uh, and this goes to the medical system as well as you know, to how your average person might think about this. We tend to think more about acute problems, uh, even though demographically and epidemiologically at this point, we suffer more from chronic ones. Um, uh, I think that we struggle with, with those experiences of chronic illness in, in every possible way from the economics of it to the pill burden uh, involved or the therapy burden involved in um, maintaining health uh, under or as, as optimal health as possible if you live with a chronic disease. Um, and then I also think that, you know, we come from a very particular set of perspectives with regard to what suffering means and what's, what, what counts as suffering and what kind of sense we make of um, both physical and mental and emotional mind, body, spirit forms of suffering. Um, I think we tend to be more materialist in our, in our biases. So it's easier to be sympathetic to someone who gets in a car crash and has major physical trauma, as opposed to someone who may be suffering from, uh, fibromyalgia, um, or even PTSD and not having the, 
it's this is changing too. Our culture is changing too, but not necessarily having the the validation or the apparatus or support um, or pathway to therapy that makes sense um, uh, as easily as we might have that for someone with a broken collarbone. Um, so I think that's part of it. But um, you know, I in in the part of the world where I live, uh, where I work, and and you know, this is not to say that. Um, this is a fatalistic view because it, it really isn't fatalism at all. It's something quite different. But people do, in a way, fundamentally accept that life is going to be hard. Um, the first noble truth of Buddhism is that life is suffering, right? Um, and that that there is a pathway out of that suffering and that our mental states are connected to our physical well-being. All of those are kind of basic cultural premises or building blocks that are so different from our own. Um, and that I do think have something, you know, pretty profound to, to teach us. Um, but that's not to say that somehow then it's easier for that grandma who's been plowing her field by hand for 40 years, who suffers from major rheumatoid arthritis. It's not to say that she's not suffering a lot or that she is in serious pain or would like to be in less pain because clearly that's true as well. Um, Dr. Craig, I have a, a question going back to sure. earlier on. Um, you said anthropology actually has four divisions or four sections, and archaeology actually falls into uh, in, under that umbrella. Yes. What are yes. the other three areas? The other three, one is physical anthropology, um, which uh, is also sometimes called biological anthropology, and that is really the study of human evolution. So those are the folks who uh, in included in that are people who study dinosaurs and who pe people who study our paleo past, uh, as well as people who study, um, like many biologists and, and ecologists today, study um, uh, other non-human primates in particular, but also other species to get a better grasp on how we've evolved in the way that we've evolved. Um, then there's linguistic anthropology, which, like it sounds, it's the study of, of the interrelationship between language and culture. And then there's cultural anthropology. Um, and medical anthropology can kind of float in between a lot of these spaces. Normally, it's, it's most connected to cultural anthropology, but uh, in many instances, it's connected also to biology, to questions of evolution, to questions of, let's say, uh, the ways that infectious disease is borne out in the marks of an archaeological dig or, you know, what happened to an ancient civilization. Um, and it certainly plays out in language and in how people talk about uh, illness or create specific categories of meaning and experience around uh, particular kinds of disease or, or therapies or medicinal plants, for mm -hmm, that matter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I just find that so fascinating. I, I, so really, what you do crosses all of them. <laughs> in a sense, yeah. Right, because yeah. I, I recall being in, uh, in Turkey a few years ago, and we were in the middle of uh, Ephesus, and there was like so many uh, cultures that have come through there, and how they knew how these people died I I was shocked. I was yeah. like, "Well, how do you know? This is a, yeah. how many <laughs> centuries ago was that?" And they could actually find out, you know, that that this this culture or these uh, this group of people had died because of you know malnutrition and you know the the dirty water. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. And 
And I yeah. take it that that is part of the medical anthropology as well. Absolutely, it can be. And there are really interesting questions that you can ask when you team up with people. Uh, we had a, a someone come and give a talk here at Dartmouth a few years ago, and her work was on the bubonic plague. And mm. um, there's this kind of simple assumption that the plague killed in Europe, killed everybody indiscriminately. But of course, with archaeology and with forms of biological anthropology, we learned that no, in fact, that's not the case. It was a huge and widespread epidemic. But as is still the case today, those who were poorer, those who were disenfranchised, those who had less suffered more. Mm -hmm. um, and that same kind of experience, which is a fundamentally social and political even set of, of points, uh, can get made in the in the human record, uh, in the human biological record. Mm, mm, that's amazing! Wow. That's when we, you know, how do you how do you all test for things like that? <laughs> wow. Um, so so the like the equipment that we have now um, does that? I, it must really advance your research. Well, for me, uh, you know, I tend not to, uh, I'm not uh, a technician who uses a lot of um, this kind of, you know, DNA testing, or I don't do a lot of lab work, but many of the people that I work with here at Dartmouth and uh, who I collaborate with do. Um, I've been working, for instance, for the last year on a project with um, another cultural anthropologist and a demographer uh, and a biological anthropologist who's uh, a wonderful scholar whose whole career has been um, sort of in and around the question of how have human beings adapted to living at high altitude? Mm -hmm. And what have been the different repercussions of that adapt set of adaptations? And is it different in the Andes as opposed to on the Tibetan plateau in, in the Himalaya? And the question is clearly, or the answer to that question is clearly yes. She's, um, she and others have, have uh, done great work on that. But part of what I'm looking at with her is this question of how do genetics and socioeconomic status and patterns of migration um, and knowledge and, and behavior at the household level, how do all of those coalesce around whether or not or how often or not a woman's child makes it past infancy uh, and mm. into adulthood uh, or into adolescence and hopefully adulthood uh, in, in this one part of the Himalaya where I've spent a lot of time working. And, you know, part of the fascinating thing is that um, for me is that although I'm not at all trained as a geneticist, um, she in her training as a biological anthropologist and other colleagues we work with have that training. And so I can put my cultural skills to bear to add another layer to a set of narratives about why someone might have the, the fertility history or the birth histories that, that they do. You know, why is it that one woman has had 13 pregnancies and only two living kids and this, the woman next door who's had a similar socioeconomic status and similar space in society, similar age, why she's had six pregnancies and five living kids, you know, why, why are those differences there? And certainly part of the answers, uh, may be genetic and, and part of the answers have to do in this case to how, uh, those women, um, 
carry oxygen in their blood and how they've, you know, been, been adapted over the long haul to being able to live at altitude successfully and to reproduce at altitude successfully. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there, you know, there are a lot of interesting questions that come across the different disciplines within anthropology. I'm fascinated. I'm very excited. <laughs> Sienna, when, when we look at uh, medicine, especially in traditional medicine in other countries, a lot of it is plant-based. And I guess our medicine also, Western medicine, started out as plant-based, but the pharmaceutical companies have uh, changed that a little bit. When we hear about certain medications that work for this or work for that, for example, a, pain, a plant that helps people with pain when we finally studied it, it turned out that it, it resembled ibuprofen, which right. made, made sense. And then we have a red rice yeast, which turns out to be similar to a statin. Are there right. some examples, some current contributions that have come from other countries that we're starting to look at, maybe do some studies with them and, and to look at uh, some things that we can change based on the traditional medicines? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I think so at the level of the, the, the plants, right. Um, we don't have to go very far to remember aspirin, for instance. Um, and the way that, the way that, um, so much of our pharmacopoeia is or was plant-based not so long ago, um, in the parts of the world where I work, um, most of the medicines that are being made are compounds. They're not single formulas or not single plants. And part of what makes them uh, effective is the act of pharmacology and the act of compounding. So most of the doctors that I work with, when they're making medicines, they're using plant products. Uh, they're also uh, uh, sometimes using animal products. They're using minerals. Um, and there are upwards of, you know, there are from about five or six to upwards of 60 or 70 ingredients in many of the formulas that Tibetan medicine produces, for example. Um, so it's a, it, it, at that level, um, there are lots of interesting questions you can ask from, uh, about what's working and why, what are the mechanisms? Um, uh, but it also, it's important to remember that these are meant to be compounds, just like we have our chemical lab-based versions of compounds and that to sort of stream them out into the idea that, well, there's got to be one active ingredient in that thing that's actually doing the work uh, is to kind of miss, to miss the historical lesson we have also learned about pharmacology and that it is often more complex than that. Um, that being said, uh, certainly there are interesting examples of uh, Materia Medica that come from the part of the world where I work that have demonstrated specific um, properties or, and specific mechanisms for those properties. I worked um, in conjunction with the, the organization I mentioned before, One Heart, um, and also uh, with another group of researchers on a National Institute of Health funded project that involved doing a clinical trial. Uh, you know, a two-arm randomized control trial uh, of uh, um, a Tibetan medicine versus a Western medicine for the control of postpartum bleeding in Tibet. And one of the things that we discovered in that trial was that one of the ingredients in the the Tibetan compound, which was made up of 11 different ingredients, one of them um, had very strong uterotonic properties. Um, and 
you know, help to constrict the uterus. Well, the, the Western drug, same thing. One of the main functions uh, and main chemical compounds in there that, that, that did the hard work or the heavy lifting was also a, a uterotonic. So, um, yeah, there are those kinds of comparisons that can be made. But I think the important thing is to remember that it's rarely just one thing or one magic bullet uh, that is doing the work. It's, it's uh, you know, traditional pharmacology is more complicated than that a lot of the time. Great answer. And just for our <clears throat> viewing audience, postpartum usually means uh, after a birth or a delivery. Right. Um, and that's one of the leading causes of death for women around the world, not just in Tibet, is bleeding too much after delivery. And so it was a project that had a lot of real world implications as well as interesting scientific questions. So. Speaking of real-world implications, I know that you speak to medical students at the medical school, and you work mm -hmm. in areas, as you said before, about ethics and medical humanities. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you talk about the relation between ethics and humanities, and you mention in some of your work the hidden curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I would like you to clarify that for us. Well, the hidden curriculum is not my concept. It's one that uh, has been written about by many people. Um, the wonderful art article from the 80s by two people, uh, Smith and Kleinman, that talk about how medical students manage their emotions uh, in medical school, and they talk about it there. Uh, a man named Dr. Hafferty, I think his first name is Phil, is the person who coined the phrase. But the idea behind the hidden curriculum is sort of you know, when you go into medical school, you have the official work that's there before you is to basically cram all of this uh, uh, hard biomedical science into your brain uh, over a four-year period or usually even over a two-year period. And at the same time, develop the skills and the practice-based learning to become a good and humanistic and ethical physician. And that... Um, the idea behind the hidden curriculum is that sometimes those two things or else simply the ideals of uh, being a doctor and the practice of working in medicine uh, conflict with each other. Um, so the hidden curriculum can also mean the kinds of do as I do as I say, not as I do messages that uh, residents or attending physicians give to their medical students as they're going through their training, where they don't model necessarily good behavior or kind behavior um, and say, oh, well, that doesn't really matter as much as X, you know, and the X could be what the tests say, what your colleagues think, but it's often also related to patient care quite directly and sort of how much or to what extent you you um, honor or validate the patient experience and their knowledge about what's happening to them versus how much you honor or validate um, what you think biomedicine um, in various forms is, is telling you about what's going on. Um, so that's one way to think about it. How do the students, the medical students respond to that? What year do you teach this in? So I, I'm not on the staff of you know, teaching the medical school right now, um, though I have taught electives in medical anthropology at Geisel School of Medicine here. Um, mostly what I've been working on and, and will continue to work on over the next year is working with colleagues, physicians and faculty uh, uh, at Geisel 
who are in the middle of a process of uh, refining and redesigning their curriculum to help them think about the place of uh, and a more inclusive place for hopefully um, these kinds of issues, bringing the things that are hidden but always there more into the light and more talked about um, and and positively integrated uh, into the curriculum. So just like we were talking before about you know, the integration of Western medicine and let's say Tibetan medicine in a hospital in Bhutan, so too you have the need or the desire to try to further integrate um, the learning of being a good and humanistic and ethical physician with the technical skill that you need to be a good technician, which is part also uh, also of, of what being a doctor clearly means. Um, so it's more, I'm, I'm more sort of thinking about this with them and doing some ethnography at Geisel as part of that process to understand um, what medical students who are going through the process now, what their current experience is with that, how they have had these issues of sort of good models of ethical or professional behavior or not so good. And what do they do with that information? Or the first time they watch a patient die or the first time they walk into the anatomy lab, what do they do with the emotions that are in that context? And, um, you know, how does that set of skills or practices over time shape, uh, for better or for worse, the kind of physician that they may end up becoming? Well, that's great. I, I think back on all of my medical training, and we didn't have a lot of that at that point, although probably mm. it was in the curriculum, as you're saying. So when you do this at, at Dartmouth, um, do you work with other medical schools around the country? Does the curriculum that you mm. have at your place, or are there other anthropologists working at, at Duke and at Stanford and at UCLA and at Harvard and University of Miami, where, are they yes. all doing this? The, the integration, I would say, of medical anthropology or medical sociology into medical school curriculums is happening more and more. Um, uh, and it's also happening in the sense that um, even from, from everything from the ways that the MCAT test is in, being reimagined right now to the ways that uh, licensing boards like the LCME think about what should be in a medical school curriculum. They don't dictate what UCLA does versus what Stanford does versus what Dartmouth does, but there are still these kind of core competencies that they're framing and saying you need to pay attention to. And I would say more and more um, these issues around being a humanistic doctor, um, using different methodologies to try to create better connections between providers and patients and families, um, thinking about, you know, the, the ways that every medical decision has an element of, of ethics in it and how to kind of bring that out, not to overwhelm people, but to get people to be more facile, critical thinkers as opposed to just good technicians. I think that this is, you know, something that a lot of medical schools are doing and, and, and not just with the help of medical anthropology, with, um, uh, a lot of grassroots uh, effort and desire on the part of physicians themselves and physician teachers themselves. Interesting. I go to uh, a lot of continuing medical education courses, 
And most of the time that we go to courses around the country, people go for their information on their specialty. What's the newest drug? Mm -hmm. What's the newest procedure? What's the newest mm -hmm. uh, technique or instrument out there? Uh, right. But I very rarely see uh, a talk on ethics. Occasionally, one does show up, uh, mm -hmm. and I've been to a few of them, and they're always very interesting. And it, it's interesting to listen. The The presenter will give a case study of some something and then ask the crowd, uh, how would you react to this? Would you tell mm -hmm. the family about the little mm -hmm. girl that's pregnant, or would you do this? And so what are we doing also, not just in the medical curriculum, but what are we doing for the physicians that are out there practicing now? I think that's a great question. It's one I know directly less about, in part because that's uh, because I'm not a physician, um, so don't have the, the same immediate access to that. But I do think that there Within continuing medical education, there are moves in this direction, um, and the direction is also uh, manifold. You know, it includes people who are interested in narrative medicine and the use of narrative writing techniques and storytelling techniques as a way not only to process their own experiences, but also, again, to connect to patients. Um, so there's, you know, there, there are growing consortiums around the country and, and also in the UK that are that are thinking about that. Um, there's a great program at Columbia that, that has that as its mandate, for instance. Um, but then you also have, um, what to say, even, even more popular literature written by people like Abraham Verghese or um, Atul Gawande, who are trying to write through those some of those ethical dilemmas and the divides and also make I think very good and important critical commentary on the politics and the economics of, of healthcare and how that impedes a physician's ability to, to do a good job um, today. So, um, and then you have things like mindfulness-based meditation practice and, you know, the work of people like John Kabat-Zinn, um, very influential in certain pockets, at least, of medical mm -hmm. training and uh, becoming more mainstream. It's certainly not the mainstream by any stretch, but uh, I think people are becoming more and more interested in these things for a range of reasons, both in terms of self-care and, you know, being able to be a decent physician by being able to take care of oneself, but also thinking about it in terms of stress management and patient care uh, as well. I uh, always like to ask Christina about, as she represents every person uh, here. Christina, do you have any questions? That That's you, the scary uh... part. <laughs> <laughs> he always puts the pressure on me. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm just fascinated by your, your history and what you have done. I, I, I'm sort of caught in that whole area of your travels and, mm. and working with the Tibetan and the Nepalese, uh, for such a substantial amount of time. Um, as as we sort of know, because of course here at Yoga Hub we we work very much with the meditation groups and things like that. Um, do you is there um, how can I say an approach or a way of life the way they see medicine in that culture as compared to here? I know we've spoken about the plant medicine and things like that, and uh, now you just mentioned a little bit about meditation. Um, mm. Do you 
see how some of those those ways that uh, that they have in their society and their culture of medicine um how it would benefit us here in the west i think that there are lots of ways um uh and it's not to say that every person that i interact with in nepal or in tibet has access to these things themselves there are many um even though it is sort of coming from their cultural uh roots or their 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 home soil um so in other words it's not just us westerners who are stressed out and tired and you know feel like the weight of the world is on their shoulders lots of people over there feel the same thing but you know uh it's differently construed um but i do think that uh some version of a meditative practice and there can be many versions of it uh is so vital um to to uh to health um both at the level of having some space for self reflection um and and being able to pull yourself out of yourself a little bit um but uh but also to recognize and and this is where kind of it comes out of the the uh, a buddhist framework that um not only that suffering is a part of the human condition but also that where we are right now is not a permanent state that nothing is permanent and that you do have actually the capacity for um pretty major transformations even if they're very subtle transformations let's say in how you're breathing and what that does to uh to how you can work or how you can live or how you can sleep um and so there there are a lot of those kinds of very basic and fundamental things that that uh we have had to i think kind of relearn or or connect reconnect with in some ways that is still part of um some of the ways that some of the people i interact with um think in their in in you know in their daily life or what they've been enculturated into um the idea that you have moments of pause uh in the day to uh do either simple acts of worship or even you know things as as vital and fundamental as walking but in a tibetan context people will go and they'll the beginning and the ends of the day if they can they'll circumambulate you know they'll walk around a monastery or they'll walk around uh an important temple and that act of walking does so many things um it's a meditative practice sometimes people are saying prayers while they're doing that but equally as often they are chatting to their neighbor or gossiping or you know creating a connection a human connection with somebody else and they're doing it as part of a stream of people they're not just one person alone um and the walking in itself is good for you because it's exercise and it's it produces the whole range of things that you know from endorphins to peace mm-hmm. uh in a, in a, in a, in in your sensibility so um i think that there are a lot of things like that that are part of daily life there um and that that people miss when they come from you know a place like Kathmandu to live which is in itself a very chaotic and and uh uh very busy and complex environment but they come from a place like that to a place like New York let's say and you know there's it's not just culture shock it's also about missing those kinds of embodied practices that help to maintain a sense of health both physical and and mental or spiritual mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's not the same when you're walking around buildings. <laughs> not quite. Sienna, when when you're an anthropologist and you look back on the past and study things, I'm wondering if you can, for a moment, move into the future mm-hmm. and imagine what a 51st century anthropologist, who probably we'd be interviewing on our two gazillionth show, uh, right. would say about Western medicine today, what it was like. Um. You know, it's funny. Just the other day, I was at a lecture at the at the medical school, and someone said, "You know, we always. Why is it important to study history? We always have to remember that the fMRIs and the uh, fancy PET scans and all of the things that we have today uh, will, in the future, be the leeches and the cupping of the past." Um, <laughs> in other words, that you know, it implied. It implied a few things. Um, it implied this idea that, you know, we tend to get very invested in the moment that we're in, in terms of it being, uh, if not the best moment, then uh, the best possible moment. Um, uh, but what was also interesting to me as an anthropologist hearing that quote is that it presumed that cupping and leeches were somehow never valuable or, you know, totally wacko. And, you know, I can't speak directly to the leeches question, but I can say that, you know, cupping is a technique that has been used for centuries and is still used in various forms in Chinese medicine to, to positive effect. Uh, you know, if, if you talk to doctors and you talk to, to patients. So it was one of those other interesting examples also of the profound capacity for, for bias or for seeing only what we want to see in a particular moment in the history of science or the history of medicine. Um, so it's hard for me to predict exactly where we will be in 2050. I hope we take care of the planet enough so that we're all here then, but that's another (laughs) issue. Um, not actually a disconnected one, but, um, um, but yeah, I think that we will have to, if, if we hope to maintain and sustain ourselves as, as human beings on this planet, I would think that there has to be more movements toward, um, if not just integration, a kind of recalibration and a, and a rethinking about what medicine is and what medicine is for. Um, and hopefully, you know, in a cup half full kind of uh, possibility to use technology so thoughtfully um, uh, and not to just get carried away in the capacity to produce a new kind of knowledge in the form of, let's say, a new fMRI image um, without really thinking about what, what kinds of sight, what kinds of evidence, what kinds of value, both medical and social, we, we are constantly forgetting about uh, in that process. Uh, so there's so much more I want to speak to you about. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Sienna Craig, uh, an associate professor of anthropology and medical anthropology at uh, Dartmouth College. And as we do with each of our guests, we always ask for a specific or special health tip that you might offer to our viewers. And I wonder if you have something for us. Um, I do. It's very, very simple. Uh, and I have two different ones. One is, is uh, um, 
shows my bias in terms of my form of practice, but do yoga, <laughs> find, <laughs> find, 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 find your way into some form of embodied practice that is about breath. Uh, uh, so that's one. Um, it doesn't have to be yoga, but some form of embodied practice that is about breath and connecting to breath. Um, and the other is comes right out of what I was saying before about Tibetans walking around things. Um, take walks, um, walk places. Uh, um, I, I grew up in Southern California and um, spent a couple of summers in in LA uh, at, when I was in college and. I, I, it was just after coming back from my first trip to Nepal the first time. And, um, I walked everywhere in Nepal and all of a sudden I couldn't walk anywhere. I had to get <laughs> in my car to go walk on a treadmill and, you know, it, uh, so find places, find ways to walk. And where I live now, I walk a lot, but I still have to get in my car to go home in rural Vermont. So it's not like it's just a city problem, but yeah, breathe and walk. Oh, I guess we're really fortunate where we live here in L.A. <laughs> Got a lot of nice hills and stairs. And yes, it's in the middle of the city, but we walk every day and we do our morning miles. So. That's great. <laughs> Sienna, is there anything that we have not talked about? I know we didn't talk about your nonprofit organization, Drogpa. Do you want to mention anything about that? Um, briefly, yeah, sure. Um, uh, it's one of many different sort of hats that I wear. Um, my husband and I started Drokpa, which means nomad in Tibetan, by the way, uh, um, right before we were married. Our wedding was our first fundraiser. And it's a very, uh, it's a very, very small, all-volunteer nonprofit that um, basically came out of the time uh, and communities in which both my husband and I had spent significant amounts of time uh, in the Himalaya. Um, we tend to fund uh, projects related to um, health, uh, including Tibetan medical education um, and clinics, uh, but not only that, um, education, alternative energy, and different forms of social entrepreneurship. Mm. Great. Is there anything else? You, that's great. Uh, I'm just wondering, did you register your wedding so that everybody <laughs> donated? Is that how you we, did that? We, no, we, we did our whole 501c3 uh, nonprofit status. And then we said, you know, in lieu of, of giving us a piece of China, you know, you can make a donation to, to Drogba and we'll put it to work for bringing solar cookers up to northern Nepal next summer. So that's the kind of thing we did. Now we're talking about some cultural changes <laughs> that we can do here. <laughs> well, we'll have to add the link to your nonprofit organization to our site as well. Sure. It's, it's also linked from my, uh, from my personal webpage, too. Great. Thank you. Yes, definitely. Thank you. I would like to thank our very special guest, Dr. Sienna Craig, for offering her wisdom and expertise to our global viewers. And thank you so much, Dr. Craig and Christina and all of the Yoga Hub group. And I would also like to thank all of my teachers and healers that have kept me on my path and allowed me to do what I am doing. And until next week, and we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, I would like to wish you all optimal health. Thank you, Dr. Woolman, and thank you, Dr. Thank you. Craig. This was a Wow, a wonderful show. And I, 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 there's so much. It's like, wow, we got to ask more questions here. <laughs>
<laughs> and of course, we'd like to thank the Yoga Up team for making it all possible. And each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. May I remind you to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman by following him on Twitter, at Glenn Woolman, and of course, through his own site, glennwoolman.com where you can also learn about his metaphor square breath. And uh, we are always grateful for any feedback that you might have. If you would like to call it in, that would be wonderful to 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, namaste. Namaste.